1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Jewish Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Miller, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Moshe Kopel about his new book, Judaism Straight Up, Why Real Religion Endures, published by Quorum Publishers in 2020. In Judaism Straight Up, Moshe Kopel explores the central differences between traditional societies, including traditional Judaism, and contemporary cosmopolitan ones. He explains the subtleties of Jewish morality, tradition, and belief, and how these have unfolded to beat cosmopolitanism at its own game. Advancing cooperation, fairness, and freedom. Written with the scientific sensibility that draws on economics, game theory, and other disciplines, Judaism straight up attempts to explain Jewish traditionalism's endurance. Moshe, welcome to the show. Hi, great to be here. Can you start an interview by telling us about yourself?
0: Sure. Um, I grew up in New York, um, went to uh, had a traditional Yeshiva education. Went to YU, uh, Yeshiva University. Did did my Ph.D. in math at NYU's Courant Institute. Spent a year as a uh, a postdoc at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, and then moved to Israel, where I've basically been uh, a mathematician for the last gazillion years. And how did you come to write this book? The truth is, this book was kind of sitting in my belly for for a very long time. When I was when I was at the Institute in Princeton, there was there was a kind of a kosher calf. And uh, and one day I had a conversation, which I relate right at the, you know, at the beginning of the book about, um, you know, it was, it was a woman who said to me, um, you know, how could you be so tribal? I'm, I'm kind of tribal about my Judaism. How could you be so tribal? Uh, you know, isn't the lesson of the Holocaust that, that you know, tribalism is a bad thing? And, and that kind of was, you know, like a real kick to the stomach for me, because for me, the Holocaust, I, I grew up among Holocaust survivors. And and the the message for me was, you know, that Jews better stick together and look out for each other. It was, it was not, gee, we ought to stop looking out for each other because tribalism is a bad thing in general. Um, So uh, I I kind of sat there when she said that I was kind of like, like thunderstruck and I didn't know what to say, but it sat with me for many years and, 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 and and eventually it kind of germinated and, and, and became a full blown book about, 35 years after the incident actually happened.
1: And as we you alluded to, the book is a conversation between two people. How do you decide to write the book in such a way and not present it as a bunch of traditional sources or other more traditional ways of, of writing the
0: book? Right. So it, it, it was kind of accidental, more or less, but I'm really glad that that's what happened. OK, first of all... Um, because it's more interesting this way. I, I, I found that people found it much more engaging dealing, dealing with characters that they could relate to rather than me just kind of talking from on high. But but, but it actually had a second advantage that I hadn't anticipated, but turned out to be really, really important, which is I, I'm describing two views of the world, right? So so there's this, uh, this chassid who's after the Holocaust. He's, you know, a little bit disillusioned. It's not the same as before, but nevertheless... His loyalty to the Jewish people remains the same. And his Judaism is kind of very natural and organic. He's not trying. It's not it's not like a, right? It's a first language for him, as I say. And, and he's one character. And then, And the other one is Heidi, who's, you know, cosmopolitan student with all the right progressive opinions. And if I were to say, this is what this kind of person believes, right? You know, people who are old fashioned and traditional believe this and do this and act this way, then people's. Natural reaction, quite understandably, would be, no. I know, I know a lot of people like that. They're not like that. You know, that's not what they think. That's not what they do. you just, you know. So I said, you know what? I- I'm going to talk about specific people. I'm now going to tell you about Shimon, who is this particular way. So nobody can come and say Shimon wasn't like that. I mean, they don't know Shimon. I know Shimon, right? And 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 nobody could say, well, no, that's not what cosmopolitan, progressive students are like. I'll say, well, that's what Heidi was like. And, and, uh, and somehow this way it works. People don't feel that, that I'm misrepresenting a group of people that they identify with.
1: Smart. It's a smart decision. And I think it worked out quite well. This leads us to our next question, which if we look at the title of the book, it's Judaism Straight Up. And the subtitle is Why Real Religion Endures. What exactly in your mind is real religion?
0: Right. So I, I I figured I'd get some flack for that as if like I know what real religion is and other people don't know what real religion is. And and I, I'm kind of I'm kind of assuming the main point here. It's already embedded in the title. So so let, let me try to give a little clarity about what I was thinking when I said real religion. Um, a, any culture is is kind of a you know, there's always a trade off between tradition and contemporary intuition. Right. There's there are the social norms that you've kind of inherited. And then there's, you know, what you think is right based on, well, what you probably think is 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 pure insight, but which is in fact just, you know, the aggregation of, of a zillion biases that you pick up from your environment. But no matter, it, it, there is this trade-off, right? And and for me, uh, I, what I'm calling real religion is religion that that captures a sustainable balance between the two, that 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 has enough respect for tradition that I would call it authentic, right? But which at the same time leaves a, enough room for not being an automaton, right? You're an actual person and you have a conscience and, and you live according. So, so when, I say, when I say real, I mean real in the sense that there's a, a sustainable balance between tradition and intuition.
1: The, the first part of the, the title, so the title itself is Judaism, straight up. And then the subtitle, as we said, is Why Real Religion Endures. So there's this specific reference in the first part, and then a more general reference in the second part to religion. To what extent is this book about Judaism, or is it more broad
0: about religion itself? So that's that's interesting. I, I most of the arguments in the book are actually um, somewhat generic, in the sense that um, you know, if I, I if I tell you that that shared social norms lead to a certain kind of solidarity, and um, and so forth. That's, that's a general argument. Maybe not every religion can make that argument, but you know, the, the religions I'm familiar with at least, you know, can make it on the other hand. Uh, you know, sometimes I need to give examples of specific social norms and specific texts that speak about those norms. And for those, I chose Judaism, um, because that's what I know. And that's what I was interested in talking about. Um, and and you know, had, had I tried to be totally generic throughout, uh, people from other religions that I know less, you know, were very likely to come and say, "No, that you you actually missed the point completely. That's not what my religion's like." So, so I, I would say that I'm starting with Judaism as my, you know, that that that's the core and that's that's what I'm working from. But I I appreciated even as I was writing it that that the bulk of my arguments were really much more generic. Appreciate that clarity.
1: I don't want to spend the whole interview looking at the title, but for the last question about the title itself, were there any other titles that, that you thought of that, that you decided were going to My work? God,
0: that, it, 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 it was actually like a painful process picking the title. And, and And I have to say that in retrospect, I'm not sure that I picked the right one. OK, I think I think Judaism straight up might be a little bit more frivolous than the content of the book. I, 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 my, my working title at one point was Judaism without apology. And then I, I dropped that because the whole book is kind of an apology. I mean, it depends how you define the term, So thought that wouldn't work. Raw Judaism was the working title that I used most of the time that I really liked because I, I like to think of what I was writing. You know, Shimon is a guy like for whom everything is really raw, right? He's not, he doesn't, he doesn't sugarcoat anything. He's just not that kind of guy. So I liked raw Judaism, but nobody else did. And then, and then I was thinking Judaism unplugged, which not too many people liked either. Anyway, I was—I I never got the title that I really wanted, so I—I I, took—I I went with what I had. So yes, so the answer is yes. There were many, many, many titles, and that's what you got.
1: I, th- I think it works well. In regards to other books that you've written, so this is not your first book that you've written about Judaism. How does this connect to other books you've written? Other arguments you've developed from in these other works and how does it potentially differ from change your views
0: from other ones or just build on what you've already said okay so so I I've, I've written hundreds of articles but three books and the three one of them was a technical one it was a a commentary on tractate keenim which is um, you know basically a tractate that that's ostensibly talking about law but if you if you delve into it you see that it's really it's really combinatorics disguised as law, and I tried to to unravel the combinatorics. And and another one I wrote is called Meta Halacha, which is um, trying to use certain mathematical ideas to to um, understand uh, the rabbinic way of thinking about how halakha evolves. Uh, so, to to some extent, this book builds on that. I mean, what w- what all three books have in common. Is that they they marry ideas from modern science and and uh, and particularly math you know mathematics and logic with religion and Judaism. Those happen to be two things I love, and I uh, naturally try to integrate them uh, when I can. And you know, I think it's a contribution that not everybody can make. So I tried to take advantage of of you know what, what, what I what I thought I had some advantage.
1: And so, as I mentioned in my introduction. The the book covers a lot of different topics: game theory, politics, many others, and we'll we'll dive into them as we continue our conversation. I want to focus on one of them, and that's politics. What is the crossover and connection between traditional Judaism and politics?
0: Right. So, look. First of all, it depends if you're talking about the diaspora. You're talking about Israel. Okay. So those. So let, let's start with the diaspora, where I think that the that for me the main the main Issue that Judaism has with politics is not to say, "Oh, th- th- these are the policies you ought to have." I don't. I don't think the Jews presume to draw from, or at least you know, from very specific sources within Judaism in order to, to tell the world how they ought to be living. You know, certain ideas, right, on on, on a very very abstract level, certain attitudes about life, uh, uh, about about the right the right way to interact with other people. But but by and large, I think the main Interest that Judaism has in politics in the diaspora is that they want the state to leave um, communities enough space to evolve their cultures, or you know, in the case of Jews, to evolve Jewish culture without state interference. I think that's really the most important thing, right? We've got ideas. We wanted to. We study Torah. We 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 try to implement them within the community. What we'd like really is for the community to be able to function as autonomously as possible without being imposed upon in either direction. We don't want want the state to say, oh, we want want you to be even doing things that Jews think you should be doing. Not in that, and certainly not in the other way. Jews, we don't want Jews to be able to practice their religion. I think think for Jews, you know, they want the state to leave them alone. Uh, In Israel, it's a little bit different because there's kind of the sense in Israel that, well, you know, it's a Jewish state, so what does that actually mean? maybe the state ought to be involved some way in promoting some some version of religion, right? So my personal view is that that's probably a bad idea. Um, I think that a religious establishment in Israel is less helpful. I mean, it probably does more harm than good. Uh, And certainly, you know, using the power of the state to coerce any form of religion probably also a bad idea. But having said that, uh, you know, when you're legislating, I think that religious people should be able to bring their values to bear no more than socialists, communists, environmentalists, or, or any other ideology. So in that respect, since there's a large Jewish majority and many of those Jews hold traditional values, I, I would neither object to uh, um, nor be surprised if, if if those values were brought to bear, you, even in legislation.
1: In the book, as, as you just said, there, there's a lot there, and there's a lot of topics, a lot of areas covered in a relatively short book. However, with any book, there's always things that the one thinks about, things that one writes, but they don't
0: quite make it to the final product. Were there any chapters that, that didn't quite make it? <laughs> Oddly enough, no. And you, you can you can check this out by the way, because I posted uh, on a blog. Um, I basically basically posted the whole book chapter by chapter on uh, on a blog. You know, sub chapter by sub chapter. About fifty, uh, you know, had maybe fifty chapters there. Uh, and uh, no, I didn't. I didn't actually cut anything out. I rewrote some stuff, but interestingly, I did add a chapter at the very end. I added chapter thirteen. The first twelve chapters, which are the first three parts of the book, are really about Judaism itself. About how Judaism operates. They're mostly based on the past. In other words, this is what Jews have done. This is what Shimon was like. This is what Heidi was like. It, you know, they're mostly in the you know the distant or recent past. The last part of the book, the last four chapters, are about our prospective. They're about what I think is going to happen. And I, I realized at some point that there was there was a, a bridge missing. I needed a chapter that kind of summed up what I had said and then said, okay, but what about moving forward? How does how does all this how does all this you know get implemented in the future? How does it play itself out? So that chapter's added, but I didn't I didn't actually throw anything out, although maybe I should have.
1: So I was gonna go there later, but since since you just mentioned it, so the last part of the book are those predictions, the, the, the things that you think and I also, um, as a, as an analyst, a software analyst, I also try to make predictions, but sometimes you like to go back and, and make retrospectives, think about, well, actually, did that pan out? And so it's been a couple of years at this point since the book's been published. Have things panned out? Are they panning out? Are there any revisions that you want to make with those predictions that you made at the end of the
0: book? Okay. So, so, so the truth of the matter is that my predictions were kind of over a different um, um, time span. I, I was talking generationally, right? So... So my 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 main prediction was that in the long term, I'm pretty optimistic about about Israel. I think that what's going on in Israel is that instead of instead of people being driven apart, despite all the loud arguments you hear all the time, but but I can see a center forming. Okay, and you know, Israel traditionally has been like, okay, Haredim are anti-Zionists; they don't go to the army, they don't get an education, um, and uh, and the religious Zionists see religion as being this kind of. Um, you know, see the state and religion is being intertwined in some profound way. And, 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 you know, the secularists think that religion is completely passe and, 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 you know, our socialist secular utopia is right around the corner. Right. And, and, um, what I've seen, I've been in Israel now for 42 years is, is how much there's kind of a, an Israeli Jewish culture forming in which, Judaism isn't, you know, we're kind of used to it as a counterculture, right? You know, there's there's all the Gentiles out there, and then there's the Jewish culture here, and we're kind of defending ourselves against this, you know, big hostile culture. And and what's going on in Israel is that that Judaism is becoming kind of a default culture. And but it's it the default culture, you know, that that Judaism isn't the same exact Judaism that people are used to, right? It's it's something in the middle, right? And and uh Secularists aren't quite that secular, and religious Zionists have gotten over the idea that you know some of their more utopian notions, right? And and the Haredim have gotten over the idea that the state is 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 anti-religion and they ought to be fighting against it all the time. Everybody's kind of gotten over themselves, and there's this culture in the middle that's forming, and and I'm very optimistic about that, right? And nothing happened in the last year or two that would make me change my view for what I think is happening over a span of you know twenty or fifty years. That's fair. That's very fair.
1: So we've gone to the end of the book and we'll move back to, to the beginning of the book. And So as you mentioned, there's a few parts in the book. There's, there's three parts in the book. Um, so we'll, we'll look at each part um, to varying degrees. And so the first part of the book is about what is the right way to live? And one of the things you mentioned, and you actually alluded to it a bit before, is social norms. So how do you think about social norms in Judaism? Give a few examples if that's relevant or helpful. How are they helpful and important for Judaism and then in general as
0: well? Okay, so so when I when I speak about social norms, uh, uh, what I'm talking about are are, are um, things that people practice because they think they're the right the right thing to do, but they haven't been legislated into law and they're not being enforced by a legal apparatus, right? So that if if uh, you know if we keep kosher or if we you know uh, dress a particular way or handle our business matters in a particular way and so forth, you know, as, as long as we're not talking about things that are uh, illegal, right, that are prohibited by law, but rather only by by Jewish tradition, I'm, I'm calling those things uh, social norms. So, uh, you know, the, the point that I'm making in the first chapter is that shared norms increase social capital, okay? So, and, the, and they, they increase social capital in multiple ways. I mean, one of them is just because of their content. In other words, so that if, to just take a very trivial example, if I know that there are certain things that I can't ever eat, regardless of the circumstances, or certain things I can't ever wear because of the circumstances, or certain people I can't sleep with because of, you know, whatever, right? Then those things build character, okay? They, you know, they, they mean that I'm I'm always aware that there are things I can do, there are things I can't do, it's, right? Right. I, I don't have to go out and start building artificial rules as, as people want to do now, right? Say, Oh, I, I don't eat that. I don't eat this. I don't eat that. Apparently people need these kind of, these kind of rules. And it may be that some of the rules are arbitrary. I mean, you know, we don't eat fish that don't have fins and scales. You know, it, it might've been fish with red eyeballs, right? It, it doesn't matter. Right. What matters is that there were rules and, um, so that's one thing. But the other is, of course, that, that the mere fact that whatever these rules are, you and I share those rules means that there's a certain amount of trust that you and I can have. Right. So my main character, Shimon, I say he can he can go into he's long dead, but I speak of him as a contemporary. He, he can he can go into uh, he was a, a Gerer Chassid. He can go into a Gerer Stiebel anywhere in the world. And, you know, immediately everybody knows what he's all about. Everybody understands him, right? They don't, they don't need to spend a whole lot of time getting to know each other, right? Uh, that, that's social capital, right? And, and uh, shared social norms do that for us.
1: Do you feel there are any pitfalls or, or downfalls to, to such a uh, society? So, of course, it, it builds social capital. It, it develops the community.
0: But where, where does that leave the individual in such a case? Okay. So, so it, it's, as I said at the beginning, it's, it's always a trade-off, right? I mean, it, you know, so yes, there are certain communities where somebody who grew up outside, right? If you take our community like you know, Satmar in Williamsburg, right? If you if you didn't grow up there, and then you went there, you might find it oppressive, right? Because you're not accustomed to that degree of social interaction of 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 people being that involved in 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 your life, right? But on the other hand, uh, you know, you get something for it, right? In Satmar. If you're having business problems or health problems or family problems or whatever it is, you know, that there's an extremely tight knit society there that's that's going to take care of you. Right now, everybody might find the optimal trade off point in a different place. Right. So so most of the people listening to this podcast probably would say, uh, yeah, I, I don't want that amount of social support and I don't want that amount of social intervention. I, I want to I want, I want to live my life you know, in my house behind the hedges without people knowing what's going on. And so that that's fine. I I, I understand that different communities put that trade-off spot in a different place, and, you know, and, and different work, you know, different things work for different people. Thanks for the, the clarification. In the second
1: part of the book, how do we decide what is right and what is wrong? You have a chapter, chapter six, entitled Between Law and Language. And so in different ways and different um. Capacities, we both have interests and, and, and professional ties to language. Um and um and so I'd love to dig in there. So what is the analogy that you make between law and language?
0: Okay, so so first I'm drawing a, a distinction between law and language, and then an analogy between Jewish law and language. So so uh it, by by the way, that's that you know, that's, a, that's an homage to, to Hayek when I say between law and language. Um and, and that's a topic that was very of great interest to him, and he has a chapter in one of his books with a similar title uh, but the point is that um that both language and law have do's and don'ts, right, so the law will tell you you know don't don't drive through a red light or or you know whatever and um and language you know will say, well, you know don't split the infinitive or or don't don't you know don't don't mess up the genders if it's a gendered language or or you know don't mess up the uh, plural and the singular you know etc cetera, etc cetera. and certain words have certain meanings you can use them in certain ways but not in other ways etc right so both of them both of them have do's and don'ts but in law in a legal system when you talk about legislation um, well there's you know there's some Congress right some some legislature that makes those laws right and they're they're actually only binding when when they come from the top down when the when the official body that legislates ha, has legislated them, and then they get enforced right they, you know there there's there are police and prosecutors and, and and a whole legal system there to 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 prosecute you if if you don't obey the laws whereas in language you know nobody's really you know making up the rules It, it just the, the rules kind of evolve right and, and it's interesting to see how words Change their meanings over time, right? So the word woke just a few years ago meant one thing, and now it means something else. I mean, just the span of a few years, right? So so stuff happens in language, right? And and interestingly, by the way, even though, or maybe because it's not legislated, it's more dynamic. People people usually imagine, oh, well, if you wanna change stuff, you need a legislature to change stuff. Otherwise, I can't change the language, you can't change the language, so it can't possibly change. But lo and behold, it does change, right? We all see that it changes, right? So so that's the difference between them. And and the point that I'm making in the book is that most people think of Jewish law as being more like law. (coughs) But in fact, it's, it's sitting on this continuum between law and language. It's not legislated, right? I mean, it once was, right? And maybe back in the days of the Sanhedrin over 2,000 years ago, and and it's true that, you know, you have great rabbis who issue rulings, which is, you know, a little bit like case law. Right. But for the most part, it just kind of evolves. Right. It evolves rather slowly, but 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 it's evolving. It's not actually legislating. There's no legislature and it's not actually enforced. I mean, if you're you know, if you violate, you know, the Shabbat rules, you know, nobody's nobody's going to come and arrest you. Right. I mean, you might you might have to pay. A social price. If you live in a tight knit community where people are watching you, and you know, say, well, you know, our community is really for people who observe the Shabbat, but, but, but it's it. You know, for the most part, you know, it's it's unlegislated and unenforced. So the point that I was making there is is that language is way closer. That that, that Jewish law is way closer to language than it is to what we usually call law.
1: And I think we see in the language case if we look at places like France and and Israel. They have certain bodies where they try to legislate the language, but alas it doesn't really work. You can try to make up a, you can make up a French word for email, but they're not gonna yeah. pick it up in a
0: It's like herding cats. Yeah, it,
1: it just doesn't work. Um so moving to, to the third section of the book. So the third section, we're moving quite quickly, but I wanna make sure we we uh, cover a lot of ground and give people a taste and then they can of course go and buy the book. So the third part is called What is a connection between belief and commitment? How would you respond to thinkers like Menachem Kellner and others, who they believe um, that belief is not necessarily the most important thing, and and we don't want to jettison people, we don't want to move people away, we don't want to be too day and and focus too much on dogma. How do you
0: respond to such a critique? I actually agree with Kellner. So uh, I I just think that the point needs to be made in a much more subtle way. So so if you take my character Shimon, right, who was who 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 was you know an extremely committed guy, right. So he's he, he's a chassid. He's after the war. He's without the beard and, you know, and, and, and the bekasher, right? The, you know, the long coat that he wore before the war, right? But, but he's still a chassid and he, he, he keeps all the rules. He does everything the way you're supposed to. But, but, and he asks, okay, what's really important to him? What does is, what is all this belief mean to him? And the answer is, look, for him, the Jewish way of life, right? Halakha, with, with all of the associated customs are totally internalized for him. And when he speaks the language, right, we're calling, we're we're saying the Jewish law is a language. When he speaks that language, he's speaking it fluently. It's a first language for him, right? It's not done in some self-conscious way. Gee, should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? He just knows exactly what to do and he just does it and it all comes right out of him. And, And because it's so internalized and it's so natural for him and so fluent, he really feels that he's part of this process a process that you know yes you know jewish law came from somewhere well you know he calls it harsinai right they with this revelation right but he's not really thinking about what revelation means you know he's not a great theological thinker but but he just kind of intuits that this comes from somewhere important and it's going somewhere it's all leading us somewhere that you know that that the jewish community the jewish nation is strong enough and jewish tradition is strong enough that it's it's kind of moving us forward to something. You, know, you could call that Mashiach if you want, right? You can call it redemption, right? But none of this matters, right? He's not thinking in terms of, you know, dogma. That's just not the way his mind works. It's kind of all built in. He lives in a particular way. So the, the way I would put it is that this narrative, right, this belief narrative that, that, that we have, for him it's it's built on top of his commitment, in other words, he's committed to a certain way of life, and because he's committed to a certain way of life, he kind of thinks of it a certain way so so that the what you know the narrative kind of comes naturally out of the commitment to practice and and the ongoing practice and the internalization of that of that practice it, it's not that you know that there's this foundation of belief, you know, he, he gets up in the morning and he says, oh yeah, God gave us the Torah and Harsinai and, you know, and I believe this and I believe this and what the Rambam says and Moses with the greatest prophet and every, he's not thinking that way. He's not thinking that way. He's living his life and, and, and the, the, the narrative is flowing out of it.
1: Following up on that, what do you mean when you write that, quote, certain beliefs are inescapable prerequisites for the very search for truth and meaning on page 141?
0: <laughs> right okay so let me give an example okay let's talk about free will free will you know philosophers have been arguing about free will for for millennia right do we have free will don't we have free will Um, i can give you wonderful arguments why we don't right i mean everything is either deterministic or it's random so neither one of these kind of leaves any room for free will right so etc etc now but let me ask you something if we are seeking truth if we think that we can seek truth, doesn't that mean that we're already assuming that we have free will? I mean, if we are seeking truth, right, So that means we have decided that this is what our mission is. We want to seek truth. OK, I'm, I'm kind of assuming free will. So m- what I'm suggesting when I say that is, you know, there were, there were some things that I, I could just give up and say, look, I don't know anything. And, you know, or I could say, no, I really care about truth. I want to seek it. And that means that I'm going to assume as a prerequisite that I have free will. That, that, that's all I meant to say. And I think free will is just the most obvious example. But if you think it through carefully, you'll see there are many more examples of that.
1: We've already mentioned a number of differences between <clears throat> Heidi on one hand and Shimon on the other. And the whole book, to some degree, is about these differences and what we can learn about these differences. Are there any specific ones which really stand out? that, If you had to say... The top one to three differences between them that are
0: the most key or the most critical. C- could you list those? Uh, it, well, they're, they're so different, right? That anybody who like has a, a you know an image of Shimon in their mind and an image of Heidi in their mind, it, it, it would be like say, could you you know could you tell me the differences you know between a chair and a basketball? Okay, well you know it would be a little bit funny if I said well, the basketball doesn't have four legs and the chair isn't round. I mean they're just so different, right? But but I, I think fundamentally, the first thing that comes to mind, and, and maybe that's the most important one, is that for Shimon, the whole idea of morality, of what's right and what's wrong. Right. It's much more than am I harming you. Right. You know, by harming somebody when I do this, does it hurt for, for him? There, there are so many different categories of morality. I mean, most saliently for him, being loyal to his people and to his right to his family and to his community that's that's a real moral issue right not to do it would be immoral and for him you know there are things that that he shouldn't be eating and things that he shouldn't be doing and he thinks of all those restraints even though they kind of seem arbitrary i mean right, why why can't you eat something that's not kosher right nevertheless for him it really is a moral issue it's not a mere convention uh, these things now for Heidi, that's completely mysterious. Okay, it, it it's really like like color to a blind person. For her, the only morality that makes any sense at all is well, don't do bad things to other people, right? And and I, I'll tell you something funny. I you know so obviously I I think the Shimon's right on this, but I'm I'm beginning to hanker for Heidi. Okay, because when I look at at Heidi's. You know, progeny Amber, I I call her in the book, right? Who are who are the woke's, right? Who 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 are now taking over uh, American campuses, and they've got a million arbitrary rules. They they are so totally past the idea of anything that isn't harming somebody, you know, in a direct way. It's okay. It's none of my business. Do your thing, right? They are past that, right? You can't say certain things because they find those things offensive right you you can't think certain things because those thoughts are a violation of all that's sacred for them so oddly enough despite having just written a whole book kind of dissing heidi i'm you know getting more and more sympathy for heidi are there any other things where you feel that
1: that shimon can learn from heidi or, or i mean potentially vice versa as well
0: well, uh, you know, the whole book is is what I think that Heidi could be learning from from Shimon about you know expanding your moral horizons, having more respect for tradition, uh, because society is way too complicated to try to figure it all out on her own and do what's best. You know, uh, sometimes tradition has things to say, and you you may not understand now why those things are wise, but but maybe after a few generations of of messing it up, you say, hey, maybe they had maybe they had something there. Maybe that evolved for a reason. Maybe those traditions are around for thousands of years because they actually helped society survive, and the societies that didn 't maintain them didn't you know didn 't survive right uh, i 'm sure that there were many things that Shimon could learn from Heidi as well. I mean Shimon was a cranky guy, he had good reason i mean he 's a survivor, and he had many good reasons to be cranky but nevertheless uh, heidi 's heidi 's liberalism, as I just said, her openness her 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 tolerance for for people who were different than herself and for letting them do their thing, I think, is something that you know Shimon could learn from her. I certainly learned from her. I'm I'm you know regard myself politically as a uh, a uh, libertarian of, of sorts, uh, or at least you know at the at the very minimum a classical liberal. So so that um, you know I learned that from her, and I think uh, Shimon could bear to learn that message uh, from her as well.
1: As we mentioned at the beginning, the book came out in 2020, and we're two years down the road, so your point was well taken that we can't make any retrospectives because your predictions are much more about about generations and and more uh, further in the future. But if we think about the last two years, they're very crazy years, difficult years for many people, and how could we think about these last two years within the framework of your book? Are there any lessons specifically that we can take from the book to explain or to help us understand these last two years,
0: you you're talking about COVID in particular. I mean, when you say these yeah, last I two mean, years, I,
1: yeah, I mean that's what I was thinking about in particular. A lot happened, of course, over the last two years. But that that was the main thing that that was on my mind. Yeah,
0: right. So, so um, honestly, I don't know. I wasn't I wasn't really thinking about COVID COVID when I wrote the book. Um, <laughs> and and also, it's it's interesting when <laughs> when I speak to Americans they think of covid as being some kind of a political issue it's a very divisive political issue where you know republicans are you know more for keeping things you know open and 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 the democrats are more for you know worrying about the spread of the disease and you know taking taking draconian actions and so forth and, and I, I have to tell you that you know we sit here in israel where it never got politicized okay it never became a right left you know everything in israel is a right left issue okay everything but COVID never became a right-left issue at all. It was—it was really all about can we find a balance here where we don't actually kill each other, but at the same time, you know, the government doesn't get too involved in our lives. You know, and and, and um, it's really weird to me to to you know to watch you guys fighting about this as if it's you know this. And, and as I said, my, my, you know, political inclinations run libertarian. So I should really be like, you know, big on this issue, like most libertarians, but I'm not because it just never became that here. I never thought about it as a libertarian issue. You know, It the first thing is, you know, like if you're a libertarian, that means that you don't like the government taking action, but it doesn't mean that you don't believe that particular kind of vaccination works or that you have certain empirical beliefs about the spread of the disease and the amount of excess deaths. Those are empirical questions. Those are not things that should involve your political ideology, right? You you should be asking those questions completely dispassionately. How many people are dying? How good is the vaccine? How valuable is it to, you know, for people to stay apart? You know, in what way is the disease transmitted? These are empirical questions. Once you've dispassionately answered those, Well, then, yeah, okay, my tendency is that unless there's a crying need for it, the government should not be telling us what to do, right? Now, deciding whether there's a crying need or not is an empirical question, not an ideological political one. So a a, a short version, I could have answered this in one line. I think that you guys are crazy for turning this into a political question.
1: Thank you for indulging me and for giving your honest take. I, I, I do appreciate that. If we think about the book as a whole, how has it been received by people? I mean, reviewers, friends, family, enemies. How has it generally been received? Uh,
0: I I have to say that it's been reviewed in I don't, maybe fifteen different journals, magazines, newspapers, and and almost all, not all, but almost all of the reviews have been rave reviews. People have really uh, loved the book uh, and are very grateful for that. Um, the 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 thing that bugs me though is that I mean maybe the reason that they're rave reviews is that it got reviewed reviewed in right wing publications for the most part, so and the book is you know conservative slash libertarian in in its view of the world, small c conservative right so I'm you know pro very pro tradition and very uh, very pro freedom and very it's the kind of thing where it's you know I would I would expect. You know the usual suspects to have liked the book, and they did. I was really hoping that some left-wing publications would review the book, so I could see what they said. So that didn't happen. Basically, didn't happen in the English press. But the book came out in Hebrew as well, and it got reviewed. Got reviewed in Israel and a bunch of different publications. Most mostly right, you know, right-wing publications, Ma'ariv, Shon, and and Hashi, uh, Hashi Loh, um didn't exactly run a review, but it ran excerpts. But, but you know, those are the usual suspects. But Haaretz, uh, which is very much uh, the left-wing publication and which doesn't like my other activities in life, w- which we haven't talked about, um, and writes about them often, actually ran not one but two reviews of the book. And the first one was a very sympathetic review by somebody whose views are are. Are not Haaretz like so, and, and that was a positive review with you know a few quibbles, which is which is what you expect. Uh, the, then Haaretz kind of felt they needed that wasn't enough, so they actually ran a second review written by somebody who is very very far to the left. I say this not because I'm, I'm giving out points to people, uh, but because he begins his review by making that very clear that 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 he regards my political views as being you know completely, you know, on on the far end of the map, as far as he's concerned. And then he wrote a very, very positive review of the book in which, you know, the, you know, the punchline was, gee, I wish people on the left would write a book that would deal with the issues as well as this guy on the right. dealt with So that for me was, you know, I was very, very pleased to get a positive review from the left. And I, I wish I would get more, I would even be happy to get panned by the left. Just, you know, I'm just happy for them to relate to the book.
1: No, that's good. It's, it's very interesting to hear. Uh, you mentioned the, the Hebrew version of the book. Are there any
0: differences between Hebrew and English, or is it a straight-up translation? It's, it's it's exactly the same. W- w- I went over every word. My, my Hebrew is fluent as well. I could have written it in Hebrew, but but I thought it would be better to have um, a, a, a pro translated. But I went over every single word. The only differences are there are certain nuances. There are certain concepts that you need to explain to the you know the English reader, which every Israeli knows, because uh, you know the Jewish holidays are you know everybody's holidays. So there there are certain concepts that here you don't need. And then there were some things that were just not explainable to an Israeli audience, and we just you know said, I forget that you know. But but that was like maybe maybe one phrase in one sentence. So not talking about anything major.
1: I, I I appreciate that. Um. So I think we're we're, we're coming to a close. But before we
0: fully wrap up, is there anything that I didn't ask that you'd like to speak about? No, you were great. I think I think I think we really did cover uh, cover pretty much anything, all the important stuff. Thank you for for, for the flattery.
1: I've taken up a lot of your time. <laughs> on the New
0: Books Network, we have a traditional closing question. I'd like to ask you: What are you working on next? Okay, so I, I I'm now working on a book which which starts. It takes as its starting point some ideas that I mentioned near the end of this book, which is um, what is Judaism going to look like in the future in Israel? And, uh, you know, the two, two, I think, main challenges are, one is something I mentioned before, which is, you know, for the past 2,000 years, Judaism has been a counterculture. And in Israel, it's becoming a default culture. How does the fact that Jewish law is kind of getting baked into the society as a default um, how's that going to change halakha itself, right? Um, that's the first thing. Remember, as I said, halakha is like bottom up. It's it's what people do, right? But what happens when you kind of open up the walls and right, you, you kind of expand out, right? There's kind of diffusion goes on and halakha is like going, well, is, is that going to dilute it? How's that going to affect it? That, that Those are interesting questions. And the other is, you know, there's all kinds of interesting technology going on a uh, real breakthrough stuff, and how's that going to affect uh, halacha? Right? I mean, we're accustomed to the idea that if you want a car to drive, you have to drive it. So if you can't, if you're not allowed to drive a car on Shabbos, well, then a can't, a car can't drive, right? But what happens when we start unbundling actions and effects? Right? You can get the effect without the action. Um, where's that going to take us? Is you know the whole idea of Shabbat going to suddenly and is it going to become so oppressive that we can't do anything, or is it going to become so open and easy because everything's automated that that it almost loses its meaning? How are we going to navigate that so that halacha retains its 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 resonance? Those those are the kinds of things I'm thinking about now.
1: Well, I look forward to reading this and to interviewing again if if you'll come on uh, the show again. I look forward to being interviewed you by by you again. So all right, sounds good. Look forward. Thank you so much. We've been talking to Moshe Kapel, author of Judaism Straight Up, published in 2020 by Corin Publishers. Happy reading, my friends.